And we're back for another discussion of the news in Northeast Ohio. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, who are all feeling serenity now because of the beautiful weekend we had. <laughs> Laura, I saw that for the first time ever, you both skied and paddleboarded on the same day. Same weekend. I did skiing Saturday and paddleboarding Sunday. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible, right? I, when I was throwing my paddleboard in the back of my car on top of my skis, I was like, this is pretty weird. But yeah. But weren't you the one that said that the water is so cold? The water right is that- so cold. And I, I, I did not go out by myself. I wore my life jacket. Um, you, you need If you've got a wetsuit, you could wear it. You've got booties. So yeah, this is not like let's just like paddle around. You should be prepared and be smart about it because if you fall in and you don't have a life jacket, that could be catastrophic. So you took people with you so you could all get hypothermia (laughs) together. (laughs) Family activity. I was with a friend, but I have yet to go paddle boarding. We we go at the Metro Parks and the Rocky River Reservation and not have people ask questions. Like all the fishermen were out and the families with the kids in the trikes. They're like, oh, what is that? How do you do that? Is it hard? I mean, well, there you go. People are interested. We should explain. First, we got to talk about some news. Why are Ohio's retired teachers so upset with their pension system that they have hired lawyers to clean the thing up? Layla, I get a lot of email from people about STRS, so we finally put together a story. Laura Hancock went deep, looked at all angles of it. Something does seem to stink here. Yes, it does. She reports that the retired public teachers in Ohio haven't haven't gotten a cost of living adjustment for the past five years, and they're really dissatisfied with the pension system's answers as to why that is. So a group of them have hired this nationally renowned pension expert to get to the bottom of it. And the result of this could end up being, you know, Ohio Supreme Court rulings and state law changes that would force more transparency in the public employment retirement system. Um, You know, the State Teachers Retirement System of Ohio, which is uh, known as STRS, is one of the largest public pension funds in the U.S. It has just under $100 billion in investment assets. It serves 500,000 working and retired teachers of Ohio public schools. And their officials told the retirees that the reason they have withheld these cost of living adjustments for the last five years is threefold. One, the pension lost money after the recessions of 2001 and 08. Two, people live longer these days and it needed more money to cover teachers' longer lifespans. And three, the salaries have been lower generally across the board than they expected and there are fewer people contributing to the fund. So overall contributions have really dropped. And the retired teachers felt like that sounded like a bunch of garbage. So Last year, the the Ohio Retired Teachers Association raised $75,000 through crowd fundraising to hire this guy, Edward Seidel. He's a lawyer from Boca Raton, Florida, who used to work for the Federal Trade Commission, and now he investigates the management of public pensions. So last year, he had requested records showing all of the fund's investments, and he says that they still haven't provided any of those records. Teachers' retirement system disputes that. They say they have turned over 22,000 pages of records. They said that the rest of his request was overly broad, and he never followed up to ask any further questions. He says that, you know, they gave him a bunch of filler. It wasn't real documents. So uh, former Ohio Attorney General Mark Dan, on a contingency basis, is representing Seidel in a public records case before the Ohio Supreme Court. This seems they've been successful so far in shaking loose some benchmarking data on the pension investments. 
And Dan says he's considered suing the pension over how it manages the fund, but he recognizes that all they have to pay uh, into that litigation is, is, is from the pension itself. So he'd rather see a legislative remedy to these transparency problems, and that might be forthcoming. The the smelly part of this was the mystery of the fees, right? That they appear to be in bed with New York investment houses, and they're paying fees, lots of fees, big-time fees, for stuff that they might not need to pay fees for, and that's what the attorneys are keying in on. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds like like you know the running theories on where this this hemorrhaging is happening is in the form of these higher than normal brokerage commissions and other fees related to the investments. So maybe some bad investments and and potentially salaries that are higher than normal among those working for the fund. Seidel had had provided this report to his clients last June. Um, that said that, uh, you know, he identified several potential fees that the pension fund may have paid to Wall Street for hundreds of millions of dollars, including a potential $143 million that uh, Sturz might have paid investors to manage money that it hasn't received yet. So that's just one, you know, one more thread of this, this ongoing mystery. <laughs> well, lots of people had asked us to look at this. I'm glad we did. Somehow, I don't think this will be the last time we hear from people clamoring for attention. It's another lesson in in public agencies needing to be as transparent as possible. Part of the reason people are so upset is they just feel like that the STRS folks are not being open. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why won't Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup and Senate President Matt Huffman avoid a potential Election Day crisis and move the date of the primary election? You know, to accommodate all the delays they've caused with their partisan gerrymandering. Lisa, we asked Andrew Tobias to dig into this because we are coming into an Election Day crisis that they could stop with the snap of their fingers. Why won't they? Well, Republicans seem to be concerned about, I'm using air quotes here, election integrity. Which is the which is the GOP you know candidate buzzword on the campaign trail, and they're worried about voter confusion. They also pointed the fingers at the Ohio Supreme Court. They said they rejected their legislative maps in January that they received in September. So what took them so long to reject these maps? Bill Seitz, who is a Republican from Cincinnati, said they are waiting for a clear and unequivocal sign from the Secretary of State that May third is impossible, and he's saying they will probably cross the Rubicon too. So I don't know if they're waiting for a thunderbolt from Mount Olympus or, or what their clear and unequivocal sign would be. The Democrats, on the other hand, say that the GOP, they're just engineering a crisis and they're pressuring the Supreme Court to accept the current maps. House Dems, in a probably largely symbolical, symbolic and failed move, they voted on uh, Friday or Thursday, Last week, they voted to amend the elections funding bill to move the date of the primary to June 21st, voted down along party lines by the GOP. Um, And Cup says that there is no support among the House GOP caucus to move the date, but I think that they're probably going to be running up against problems. The Cuyahoga County Board of Elections Director Tom Perlotti said, look, we only just got the legal descriptions of the legislative maps. They're currently proofing the ballots, but he said because things are still in flux, mistakes could be made. He says they, yeah, yeah. they will... 
Of course there are. They're rushing. I mean, they're pushing up against a ridiculous cliff. We don't. The Supreme Court hasn't even ruled on the legislative districts. They could throw them out again. There could be nothing for people to run on. And the legislature is just playing this game. Blaming the Supreme Court is bogus. It's the Supreme Court's job is to enforce the law. The legislature's job is to make sure we can have a safe election. It's hilarious that they're using election integrity as the mm. reason for not moving the date, because election integrity is going to fall apart if they continue to aim for May. And, you know, there's there are deadlines are coming. I mean, March 18th is the deadline to mail, you know, uh, international and military ballots out. Perlotti says, we're not going to make that deadline. He says they may meet the April 5th opening of absentee balloting. He says balloting. He says he thinks that's what they can do. And so, and I had to kind of laugh a little bit because some people are saying, oh, this is going to have terrible effects on the primary candidate budgets and spending. Well, since most of the Senate candidates anyway, or the U.S. Senate candidates are self-funding, I don't think that'll be much of a problem. No, that's another bogus claim. The the Supreme Court should rule any day on the latest legislative districts. If they accept those, you you could move on to an election date with everything but the congressional districts, which are still very much up in the air. Uh, This week should see a lot of activity on all fronts. It's today in Ohio. Did Ohio lawmakers write the actual words and rules in the bill that is moving through the legislature to allow people to carry concealed weapons without permits? Laura, this was done by the Ohio Capital Journal, a good story. They found something by looking at metadata in a document. Yeah, metadata on the state website that shows it'll show you the bill and the the testimony and where it stands. And so Chris Doerr, he is a no-compromise gun lobbyist and the executive director of Ohio Gun Owners. He's actually the author of this. And uh, so he's a lobbyist. And Tom Brinkman and Chris Jordan, that was their testimony. And But the, the author was actually Doerr. And he said in a text message that in an interview Thursday that he maybe slash probably wrote the speech, but he couldn't remember. And Brinkman's, <laughs> I know, right? It's always, it's always. Yeah, I uh, never remember convenient. speeches that I have to write and give to people. That just goes right out of your mind. <laughs> right. And Brinkman said his staff might have gone back and forth with Door to, quote, polish the speech. But I absolutely love this quote from Brinkman. It's so telling about how politics works. He said, I have no idea who writes my testimony. I never write my testimony. I never write my floor speeches. That's what staff is for, which is just, you know, like the how they make the bacon, right? You're just like, okay, so you're standing up on a floor testifying to this, but you didn't write it. Do you do you believe it? I mean, the idea of this bill is that it will allow anyone 21 and older who can lawfully own a gun to carry it concealed. So, I mean, this is a big, big change for Ohio. We talked about it on the podcast, and we have a lobbyist who's writing the testimony from the lawmakers. Although, I don't think this is that unusual. I don't it, think this it's This is unusual. one of those where it's like, I'm shocked, shocked to find there's gambling going on here. <laughs> I mean, of course the lobbyists are writing the speeches. The lobbyists write the laws. A lot of the laws that they propose in the Ohio legislature they've taken from other states that and, have passed the law look at the first energy bill. I mean when we look at the first energy stuff how all the Randazzo um, writing of that I mean but that doesn't make it I mean I understand it's not shocking and this is how it works but it's not how it should work and it's still galling to me 
Although a lot of people do have staff help them write their speeches, and the staff does do research mm-hmm. to do that. They're not supposed to just plagiarize and, and steal it from other places, but there is some there is truth to what he's saying about, look, I... I read the speeches. I have people help me write them. You, you know, presumably he's becoming familiar with the words before he says them so he can actually put his name behind them. But it's an interesting get. It just shows you how much the gun lobby is influencing the legislature, right. which has seemingly been in the pocket of the gun lobby for decades now. And Dor and his brothers, the lobbyists, they represent affiliate gun owner organizations in 11 states, and they generally seek to be even more no compromise advocacy than the lawmakers. They take this grassroots approach. And obviously the bill last week passed a separate Senate version of this bill. And they, they added two amendments at the time, but Brinkman tried to remove the, the changes was blocked by on procedural grounds by Bob cup of all people. And they passed the bill shortly afterwards. And Dorr went on Facebook Live and basically said he praised Brinkman for trying to scrap the committee changes. So it's like, I mean, this guy seems totally in the pocket of the gun lobby. Yep, absolutely. They were in the pocket of First Energy. Mm -hmm. They're in the pocket of the gun lobby. Whose pocket are they not in? It's Today in Ohio. How does Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb plan to make good on his campaign promise to remove the ugly concrete barriers in Public Square? Layla, it was big news in 2016 with the RNC coming, a huge renovation and change of traffic patterns to make Public Square this this city jewel. And no sooner <laughs> did the RNC leave that Jap- Frank Jackson, then mayor, got into a fight with RTA and put up concrete barriers, claiming it was all for security. Right. People have complained about it since. Bibb said he was going to fix it. What does he want to do? Well, he wants to fix it. He's He announced Friday that he's proposing legislation to spend up to $1.5 million to replace those ugly, awful concrete barriers that were installed five years ago with steel bollards, which are these low-profile steel columns that are strong enough to stop a vehicle if, if need be. I think there's also discussion of maybe making these retractable in some places and things like that so you can customize the space for different events. You know, Bibb says that this restores Public Square to its original intent as a meeting place in the heart of the city. When when that work begins, you know, we don't know when that's going to happen. Might It might depend on supply chain issues, which we're all at the mercy of. But RTA might kick in some money for this project. That's on the table. That would be nice. Uh, the city can also start raising additional money from corporations and foundations to fully fund the removal and replacement of these things. And and the uh, they're saying the estimated price tag for the fix is about $3.5 million. Until now, private sector funders have been waiting for the city to make the first move, which didn't happen under Frank Jackson. They were It was just sort of languishing with these giant, awful eyesores well, there. He he got mad, right, because he wanted to keep Public Square open and free of the buses. And it, it was an election year. It was uh, when he was running for re-election for his last term. And it became very political that if we make the buses go around the square, it became portrayed as a social justice issue because it was adding minutes to their commute. I mean, when, when Justin Bibb talks about the original tent for Public Square, was the original tent to still have buses going through the middle of it? Shouldn't that be part of the conversation? Well, yeah, I guess so. But like these these concrete barriers don't don't change anything about that. 
right? I mean, this is really, the, I don't know. Well, he put them up because the buses were going through. If the buses weren't going through, they could block the street at both ends, and then you wouldn't need them. But with the buses bisecting it, you had to have some kind of protection to keep uh, people from doing bad things security-wise. I, I just, it's great that they're going to take these things down. They've been, uh, you know, we no sooner do we finish making this thing look nice than they made it look terrible with these concrete barriers. Yeah. You know, and Frank Jackson was having a bit of a snit. He was like, okay, you, you know, you're going to put buses through. I'm going to make it ugly. But for the, for, in, <laughs> for the public, I, I don't understand why punish the public over yeah, something I that, know. you know, feud with, with RTA. That's right. silly. It, it was silly. But the overarching argument about let's get the buses out of there, that's an argument we should get back to. A whole lot of people appreciated the square. I don't know. I, I'm hearing there's a lot of crime down there. Sherman Williams might open a headquarters in a place where carjackings are rife. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is the Republican Party working to attract more black voters in Northeast Ohio? We saw our politics writer Seth Richardson did a takeout on the efforts, the continuing efforts to reach black voters, not just in election years, but around the calendar. Yeah, the Republican National Committee is opening community engagement centers around the nation. Cleveland was the very first one. There's also one in San Antonio, Texas and College Park, Georgia. So basically their goal is sustained contact with black voters in the black community and they really haven't reached out to them before beyond election time so they're looking at you know like I said sustained interaction with the community they're encouraged by the fact that in 2020 uh, Trump garnered eight percent of the black vote that was up two percentage points from 2016 the coordinator for Northeast Ohio's effort is Carolee Upshur she says that black voters have the sense enough to choose what's better for them which I don't know if is good for them. Um, and they say that the media portrayal of the Republican Party to blacks is a huge part of the problem. So the things that they're looking to engage black voters on are religious values. Uh, blacks are more likely to attend church and black congregations are very powerful politically. We've certainly seen that here in the Democratic Party in Cleveland. They also want to focus on abortion issues, especially those religious voters that are against abortion. And they also want to talk about the economy, but what they're talking about economy-wise, they say they want black voters to think of their children's future before voting on spending today. So, and you know, which, you know, makes sense. Um, they also want to be business friendly. They want to uh, get into opportunity zone development, which often uplifts poverty stricken and black neighborhoods. So we'll see what happens. But there is some there is some skepticism among black Republicans. Andre Morrison is a political advisor locally. He headed the 2014 Lincoln Initiative for the Cuyahoga County GOP party. But he said it fell apart when Jane Timken became the state GOP chair. And he'll go ahead. Well, but let me interrupt you, because I don't get this. The The Trump years opened the door for racists to go large, right? Racism in this country kind of exploded over the last five years. Trump's reaction to the to the George Floyd killing and Black Lives Matter was was horrible. I don't understand why a black voter would embrace the Republican Party. I mean, I read the story. Do you get this? I, I, I really don't. And Morrison does admit, he says, Trump is a liability to their engagement efforts. So I wonder how far this will actually go. Um, 8% is still not a lot. 8% of black voters going for Trump. And I have to wonder what was in their head. What was it about him that they liked so much? I really wished I could put my 
finger on that. I really don't know what it is. I mean, this is the party that tried to claim that Barack Obama wasn't really the president because of the whole birther thing. I, it's a strange one that that Trump did get more black votes the second time around than he did the first time. I don't really understand it, but I guess it's a good strategy for the Republicans. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What percentage of home sales in Cuyahoga County, particularly the east side of Cleveland, involve buyers from outside the region? Laura, we talked about this after The Scene published a fascinating story about one company that was really kind of taking advantage of people uh, in in fashioning these homes that are bought by out-of-town out investors, I guess. Uh, but now we have some numbers to put behind it based on a study released today. Uh, a study was released yesterday, and it's, yeah, nearly half of the home purchases made on the east side of Cleveland in 2020 were not by an individual. And the percentage of homes that outside companies bought in the county grew exponentially from 2004, we're at 7.2% to 21.1% in 2020. And obviously, this does include the the financial crisis and the foreclosure crisis. But now I would have thought it would be way down now that we're out of that. But this is a report from the Vacant and Abandoned Property Action Council. And basically it quantifies a trend that everybody knew was happening. And the fear is that new owners don't have local roots. They don't maintain their properties and they could make unpermitted changes. They could treat tenants poorly and they could contribute to a spate of problems in some of the poorest majority black areas in Cleveland. The idea of calling them investors is a misnomer because they're just there to make money and to bleed the property dry. And they're actually outbidding some people who, who would like to buy these houses but obviously need to have home inspections and need a, a mortgage. They're coming in. They're offering cash. No no contingencies. And so they're scooping up houses, keeping them out of the hands of owners that would care for them, and basically letting them rot. And at least that's the big fear. Yeah, gouging people on rent. Mm -hmm. I, it, we, we did talk South Euclid had a good mm -hmm. policy of insisting that out-of-town owners had a local agent that the housing department could go to to insist on corrections. And then the South Euclid person in charge of that is working for Justin Bibb now. I, do we think that we'll see some similar kind of legislation passed in Cleveland to compel anybody who owns a property in Cleveland to have a local representative? I think there's some really good points about that. That's a possibility. There are several recommendations, including barring landlords from refusing to accept public housing vouchers, which obviously Layla Tassi has wrote, written a lot about and that's been talked about. One of the biggest recommendations is to ensure the building and housing department gets enough money to inspect and address problematic po properties. Because if you don't have a department that is active, then you can't know which ones are the problems. They also want local and state laws to require more disclosures for who's behind the company property owners so they can track them down. But you're right, South Euclid it does have this issue. The majority of their 1,600 rental units were owned by people and companies out of state. And Eric Heisig has a fascinating table in his story that published, basically showing how big the problem is in the east side of Cleveland. It way, way bigger than the west side of Cleveland, bigger than the inner ring suburbs, bigger than the outer ring suburbs. So it's really concentrated. Okay, check out Eric Heisig's story on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. How is an Akron company doing its part to save the earth with the technology being used in the recycling industry? Layla, it's always good to have some good 
recycling news, right? Because we is. talk about all the ways it fails around here. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot of times, so don't make me get up on my soapbox again. <clears throat> Pete, Pete reports that 91% of plastics don't get recycled and end up in a landfill. It seems pretty shocking considering that we're all under this impression that our sorting out plastics is saving the planet. So he tells us that later this year in this small town in Northeast Indiana, a San Francisco firm called Brightmark Energy will begin converting waste plastic into fuels and wax. And this is the kind of waste that municipal recycling programs just don't accept. It says, the company says that its process is 93% efficient, which means that for every 100,000 tons of plastic that goes into the plant, 93,000 tons become useful products. The plant will convert a variety of plastic materials. That includes polystyrene, stretch wrap, styrofoam, which until now had been doomed to survive in a landfill for quadrillions <laughs> of years. Um, it'll also use the waste from injection molding operations, even those, you know, crazy, the plastic bags that can, you know, gum up the works at recycling plants, even those, they will take those. Eventually, the, the plant will be taking 100,000 tons of plastic a year out of the environment and reprocessing it into low-sulfur diesel fuel, naphtha, which is a flammable liquid hydrocarbon mixture, and wax, no differently than if the raw material being used were natural gas or crude oil extracted from the ground. The, the technology, interestingly, is, it was developed by Akron-based Polyflow, with help from some local angel investors. And it, it's, it involves pyrolysis, which is when materials are heated at high temperatures in the absence of oxygen. And the all right, all right, all right, yeah. all right. but, but if we have to use fuel to heat it, are we, are we getting some benefit for the earth? Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's above my pay grade. <laughs> well, I mean, and also, you... you know, I also wonder about things like emissions from places like this, because if you're, you know... We, you know, we talked about this with garbage gasification years ago. <laughs> like, yeah, there right. is some byproduct of this, so that that might not necessarily be friendly to uh, you know air quality and things like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'd like to know more about that. I'd like to know more too. It's fascinating if if this works, but I would like to know what the balance is for the use of fossil fuels to do it. Maybe they've come up with a an efficient way of raising the temperature. Yeah, it's today in Ohio. What is the market wagon and how is it helping people eat healthier foods? Lisa, we're going to stay on the environmental kick. Yeah, this market wagon is an app, an e-commerce app that was founded by Nick Carter of Indianapolis, Indiana. It became available in Ohio back in 2020. What this does, is it allows regional farmers and chefs to sell their produce and, and other stuff, meats, whatever, online. And then the delivery is done for them for a flat fee. Um, there's about $1 million in sales in Cleveland so far, and they have a thousand active repeat customers. So the way this works, the customers have until one o'clock AM Wednesday to place their orders. These orders are delivered one time a week for a flat fee of $6.95. Farmers see these orders, they fill them, they take them to a distribution center in Bedford Heights, and then those orders are delivered to customers by rideshare drivers. And then of course, Market Wagon does take a Cut. But the farmers are happy because these are guaranteed 
guaranteed sales. I mean, they can go out to a, a you know a farmers market, set up their booth, haul their produce out there, and not know you know if they're going to sell and weather could be a factor in that. So this way, they have guaranteed sales. They know what they're selling, and they don't have to create a shipping infrastructure for themselves. Uh, market wagon is available in 33 markets so far, including Cleveland. If you want to know more, go to marketwagon.com or find the app on Google Play or Apple stores. All right. So last week we had a long conversation about how nobody on this podcast was ordering <laughs> right. groceries to have them delivered. Would anybody do this to get the healthy food and support local farmers? I think so. I think that there's a strong locavore local food movement, and I think those people want to buy local no matter what that takes. And online is just another way for them to do it without having to get into a car and find a farmer's market. It sounds really, it sounds similar to like a CSA, but they deliver it. Is that what I'm understanding here? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And I so think you'd be okay like with it, Layla and Laura, if they just, they delivered this stuff to the takeout stand where you get your dinners? Hey, I <laughs> rarely have takeout. There's a lot yeah. of Aldi pizza going on in my house, but we didn't, we're, we're not bougie enough for takeout all the time. Yeah, I mean, here, my question is, will will they deliver Five Guys burgers? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, not for this app. But I think it sounds like a genius idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that they it would take so much energy for them to go to the farmer's market um, once a week, and now they've, they've got that coming to them. I mean, win-win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cool story. It's Today in Ohio. Let's do one more. Northeast Ohio's most famous native, LeBron James, inspired a play that has just opened in Chicago. But he's not a character in it, even though it's called King James. Laura, what's it about? Yeah, this is really cool. It's from a Cleveland Heights native, two-time Obie Award winner. His name is Rajiv Joseph, and this just opened at the Steppenwolf Theater. It's about the fan experience and how sports bring people together. So, right, it's about LeBron without having LeBron as a character. It's focused on LeBron's impact and influence on two sports fans. Those are played by Glenn Davis, and who's been on Broadway, and Chris Perfati, who is in ABC's comedy Abbott Elementary right now. So Joseph grew up in Cleveland cheering for the Cavs, the Indians, and the Browns. He dealt with a lot of disappointment, but he loved the, the spirit of fighting in Cleveland and the, and the idea of the hope. So that's what he put into his play. And it, it sounds it sounds like a winner. He says that he this isn't just for sports fans. It's about coming together. So interesting. Well, r- reporter Joey Morono will be attending one of the early performances and letting people know what to expect from it. Look for that soon in Cleveland.com in the Plain Dealer. It's today in Ohio, and that wraps up a Monday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. And thank you for listening to this podcast.